Two and a Half Admins, episode 99. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan. This time, Jim wrote it, From Zero to Beehive on FreeBSD 13.1. Yeah, so if you've never used Beehive before and want to know how to get started, this article takes you from, I've never heard of Beehive before, to I'm running Windows and Linux and FreeBSD VMs on top of FreeBSD in only a couple of minutes. Yeah, it's really not hard, and uh, it's a very promising hypervisor. High performance, pretty easy to work with. Uh, the tooling's not quite up to where it, you know, it is in the Linux world with KVM, but it's getting there rapidly, and it's already, you can be very productive with it. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. The first one is a PSA from you, Jim, about Water Panther drives. Yeah, I had never heard of this company before, Water Panther. I have seen some Redditors express doubt at calling it a company at all. I really don't know, and I want to be careful not to say anything that could potentially be actionable. But uh, I became aware of this outfit when they spammed RZFS, just very blatant and bold uh, buy links for three different vendors to their drives. And uh, I removed the post and, you know, warned them no spam. And they tried to push back. I'm like, oh, this isn't spam because these drives are great for ZFS. And it's like... You need to brush up on what spam is, dude. <laughs> and they kept pushing back. So I started looking into them and I discovered there's a lot of complaints from people on data hoarders and Reddit that they had bought some of these drives, which are extremely low priced. They'd had all kinds of problems up to and including discovering that the drives had all zeroed out serial numbers and firmware. So some people tried to add more than one newly purchased drive to their system and had issues with smart backplanes or, you know, with some... RAID-type platforms like Unraid that just absolutely did not appreciate finding two different drives with the same serial number to wit all zeros. Uh, the Water Panther, whoever person that was manning that account, for lack of a better word, tried to push back on that as well. So, oh, well, that was, you know, just one problem that we had, like, initially when we first started, and that's all sorted now. But uh, the whole thing is very sketchy. Some of the drives they sell are absolutely used drives that have been recertified. Uh, some folks seem to think that all of their drives are that way. We really don't know that for certain. All we really know is you can absolutely match up any of their drives to an equivalent model of Seagate or Western Digital or what have you. And it seems likely that in some cases, they're refurbs that have been rebadged. In other cases, it's probably what folks sometimes call Chineseium which is what happens when you go and find the factories that are actually manufacturing drives for a large, well-known OEM and say, hey, let me buy some of those without the brand name and do my own thing. Uh, I cannot tell you which of these drives are which of these things, but I can tell you that subreddits where people have been using these things are full of complaints. I can tell you that when I tried to investigate the company itself, I discovered that their address is listed as something that resolves to a shopping mall in a subway station in New York. And I looked up the shopping mall and I can find no record of an outfit called Water Panther or anything to do with hard drives anywhere in there. Not that it would make much sense for a freaking hard drive vendor to have expensive shopping mall subway station space in the first place. So I can't make a whole lot of claims about direct knowledge of exactly what's going on with those folks. I will, however, advise caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. And this is relatively common, isn't it? There's quite a few of these outfits who are selling refurb drives without saying that they're refurb, because there's nothing inherently wrong with selling refurb drives as long as you're clear about it, right? 
I don't know that I would say there's a lot of outfits doing what these folks are doing. This was kind of a new one on me. I'm very familiar with buying, you know, refurbished drives. And sometimes that literally just means used. But normally when that happens, you know, you're getting a drive that still says Western Digital Red Pro or Seagate Exos or whatever. Like the the original paper label is still on it. The firmware is as it was. You can check smart for all the data. This, where somebody's putting their own brand name on a model of another vendor's hard drive. Now, again, it's entirely possible that in some of these cases, they literally bought from the same manufacturer that the OEM vendor did before the label went on there. But in other cases, it seems very likely that they mucked around with the smart data. I mean, how do you end up with all zero serial numbers in these things? You know, it just, it's sketchy. Yeah, like looking at the smart data from uh, the post on Serve the Home, it looks like the model number was just like hex edited to replace some of the characters, but keep the rest. And then the serial number was just zeroed out or whatever. And the firmware version number was also just monkeyed with. And then looking at the actual smart data, it appears that the lifetime power on hours was reset to zero. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the total LBAs written is still a huge number, like (laughs) 2.7 billion which I don't think you could write that many sectors in only two hours of power on time. The world's first NVMe mechanical hard drive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, yeah, I definitely have concerns if they're monkeying with the firmware, whether it's, you know, even just simple hex editing to replace some strings. It's just like, that gives me the willies. <laughs> and yeah, the, the serial number thing, you know, maybe they don't, they know not to muck with the serial number anymore or, you know, not to set it to all zeros that they have to actually give each drive a unique serial number because that will mess with a lot of things. Uh, like I saw in the Reddit and the, and the server home thread, sometimes it's just the auto-generated device IDs in Linux even where it tries to use the serial number. It's just like, hey, you can't have two different symlinks pointing to the to different drives. So one of these is going to win each time. And when you reboot, it might not be the same one. Yep. And then if those labels, you know, that you're depending on to point to the same drive always don't because they all have the same serial number, you can cause all kinds of havoc. And yeah, it was interesting. Some of them, it looks like, you know, not all the drives are necessarily the enterprise drives. I think there's one post where it looks like somebody actually got one of the surveillance firmware type drives, like the Skyhawks Mm -hmm. or whatever. When they're kind of hiding that by relabeling it themselves, you know, you buy a bunch of drives and they might not all actually be the same Firmware, you know, might not all respond the same to to the workloads. So the bottom line is, you get what you pay for, and if it looks too good to be true, then it probably is. I mostly say, if you want to buy refurbished Seagate drives, there's companies that sell refurbished Seagate drives. Mm-hmm. Things where somebody else is taking the time to put a label on it means you're paying extra for something. Yeah, and and it doesn't appear to be a something that's particularly good. Um, like I said, I buy tons of refurbished drives, and honestly, it's not hard. There's no Big secret to it, you know, go on Amazon or Newegg and search for refurbished drives. Um, It's usually going to be from a third-party vendor that's selling through either one of those platforms. You can look up that vendor's reviews and see, are people complaining or are they happy? Go from there. If you're still feeling paranoid when it gets to you, you know, check the smart data, see how old the drive is, run bad blocks over it if you've got the time. For myself, generally, I'd kind of just throw them into the array and go I will look at the the blocks used, you know, on smart because, again, the good vendors will tell you this is the range of LBAs written that you'll encounter on these drives. This is the range of, you know, hours powered on that you'll find on these drives that we're selling. And so, you know, you grab one of those and you just do a quick check and make sure that actually matches what they said. And 
you're off to the races. Yeah, and like generally they're going to bucketize them. You know, you can decide how old a drives you want to buy and, and be sure that you're getting something that's going to have the amount of useful life in it that makes sense for, you know, why you're buying refurbished drives in the first place. And also keep in mind, you know, even in the cases where it may not be a used drive, it may be a deal where they found, you know, the the actual manufacturer that an OEM vendor subcontracts their stuff for and, you know, buys, quote, the same, unquote, drive off-label before the branding goes on, you still don't know exactly what happened there. You don't know if there's some secret sauce you're missing out of the firmware. You don't know if the folks that are running that factory floor, who almost certainly outside their manufacturing agreement with a big OEM vendor, chuck some of these things under the table to somebody. You don't know if they're using the same quality bearings. You don't know if it is, maybe it's the same bearings, but like literally like all the crap that didn't pass QA, but quote works, unquote, while they were building them. It's kind of like, you know, when I used to smoke cigars, you can get these, uh, you can get these insanely cheap cigars that are literally the floor sweepings that are left after they make the big names. They, you know, they cost all the money. And, um, it's not the same thing. Yeah, it's the same leaves, but the crap they swept up off the floor, it's not as good as the stuff that went out with the right label on it. So, Alan, one of Canada's big ISPs fell over recently. So, yeah, Rogers had a massive outage. I think it started at about 4.30 in the morning on Friday and lasted at least 15 hours before anybody had useful service back. And some people still had problems through most of the weekend. And I know there was another mini outage for some people on Monday morning. And this was wide internet as well as wireless. And it even affected 911 calls. Yeah. So it appears it was actually in Rogers' uh, transport network, the very lowest layer, which is actually the connection I have. Like I don't actually buy an internet connection from Rogers. I buy a link between my house and the data center where I buy internet from the internet, uh, from backbones directly. And so that was down. And so it meant that everything based on it was down. So the backhaul of like the cell phone towers to their network was down. The backhaul for the cable TV was down. The whole substrate of their network was fell over. So yeah, no cell phones, no wired phones, no cable, TV or internet. And it also took out the debit card processing network in Canada because it turns out they were using Rogers for their transport behind the scenes. So, you know, doesn't matter what internet the store had for their terminal that would connect to the debit card machines because Interac, the network at the back end that runs the debit card system, used Rogers, they were completely out. A little off topic, but I'd just like to say, I buy my internet from the internet is absolutely <laughs> my new favorite Alan Jude quote. <laughs> yes. This sounds pretty catastrophic then. This sounds like end of the world stuff. Yeah, so anybody who had Rogers for their home phone or cell phone couldn't dial 911. Most of the 911, 911 networks were still up, but like my cell phone is with one of the other carriers, uh, TELUS, so my phone still worked, but other people, they just couldn't. And then it turns out the ambulance dispatching in some cities used Rogers for their system. And so even if you could get to 911, 911 couldn't tell the ambulance where to go. So what actually happened? Was it a backhoe attack? No, this was uh, them doing, I imagine, something like a firmware update on their routers and something cascaded and all their routers started just flooding their network with nonsense. Oh, it's the Facebook outage all over again. It's not quite, they didn't quite lock themselves out of the building where the routers were, but <laughs> similar, yeah. Except for basically, maybe, I think it's a little bit more like the Cloudflare one mm. where they tried to block all packets bigger than one big byte bigger than the biggest packet and then all the routers fell over. Yeah. 
Yeah. Some config change they made, they've not given very many details yet, but it knocked their whole network over and it took them a very long time to fix it, which really raises questions about how they didn't have a quick re rollback mechanism sorted out. Well, they did, but you see, they needed that transport layer to activate it. And <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is something even commonly I will use if I'm making changes to a firewall or something. It's like, apply the new rules for two minutes, then roll back. <laughs> if I lost connection, I'll be able to get it back and decide, okay, those rules don't work. Yeah, we talked about this with the Facebook thing, right? Even when you change your monitor settings, it has that confirm dialogue and otherwise reverse. Exactly. Why they didn't have something like that, I don't know. And they're getting yelled at. Uh, the uh, CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Broadcast Commission or whatever, the Canadian version of the FTC, I guess, has said Rogers has 60 days to file a report on how they screwed this up so badly and what they're going to do to fix it. Well, that's not the Canadian version of the FTC then. That's far more teeth than the FTC has ever had. <laughs> well, you know, everybody that works at the CRTC used to be an executive at one of the big three telcos. So it's pretty toothless, but this was embarrassing enough that they had to do something, I suppose. And actually, I think it was announced today, the government of Canada is going to force the big telcos to assist each other in an emergency so that next time Rogers falls over, they have to make it so my phone can roam to TELUS or whatever, and I can still call 911. Which seems kind of sensible. Why wasn't that a thing before? Although, you know, we don't generally plan on 30% of the telco capacity in the country falling over at once, but it'll also be interesting to see what impact this has on uh, the proposed merger. So Rogers was in the process of trying to buy Shaw, the fourth biggest telco in the country. Oh, no, block it. Yes. <laughs> Just no. And then there's also a link in here that, you know, people in Canada pay the worst fees for heavy data usage, like... Average Canadian who uses 10 gigabytes a month on their cell phone pays $200 for their phone bill. What? I pay like just over 10 pounds for, I think, 12 gigabytes of uh, usage. I never hit that, but yep. yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, Canada's worse than any other country. I pay 15 bucks a month. Now, granted, that's through Mint Mobile. It's not, you know, one of the, the major carriers, but still, I'm paying 15 bucks a month, man. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is things like Mint and Ting would love to be in Canada, but the incumbent telcos are like, no, you can't force us to sell to MVNOs. Which this is exactly why, I mean, merger hell, split up the ones you got. Exactly. So big Canadian ISP fell over for a very long time, took out everything. People couldn't pay for things with debit cards. They couldn't call anybody. They had no internet. It really made a hell of a mess and really showed that we don't have enough competition for telco in Canada because even people that had internet from other companies like Tech Savvy and a bunch of other, it turns out they're mostly just reselling the three big telcos. Mm -hmm. And outside of Quebec, which has one or two others, although one of the big ones in Quebec just got bought by Bell. So various problems. And then, you know, as if the three telcos owning everything wasn't bad enough, it turns out they also own pretty much between the three of the four of them own almost every TV and radio station in the country and all the newspapers except for one and uh, all the sports stadiums in the country and everything else too. Well, here in the land of, you know, AOL, Time Warner, yada, 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 whatever, whatever, all in one company that then merges with Charter. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know how to end that. Just I feel your pain, brother. Yep. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, 
to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Okay, Apple has announced lockdown mode for its iPhones. And this is specifically for the kind of person who the likes of NSO Group would target. So it's a very small number of users, but those users are quite important users. Yeah, like I think this trails back to when certain U.S. government officials could only use Blackberries that were locked down a certain way. You couldn't have an Android phone or whatever because they were worried about nation-state attacks on the software. Now, that's not really a thing anymore. And so Apple's come up with this lockdown mode, which is designed to defend your phone against nation-state-style attackers and, and that kind of malware that's not going to be broadly used against a lot of people. It's going to target very specific people, whether those are politicians or diplomats or celebrities or other high-value targets. And this isn't just hot air. It sounds like this is a genuinely good thing that they're going to do because they're pretty straightforward about it. You're going to have fewer features. It's going to compromise the user experience to do this. So this is not something that everyone is going to want to enable. That's one of the best indicators of a genuine platform hardening is, uh, by the way, it's going to suck using this more, so be sure you want to do it. <laughs> when someone is just like, oh, it's great, like nothing will slow down, all the features still work, it'll just be more secure. Yeah, that's when you put a hand on your wallet. Yeah. Security is always kind of the slider between you can be more secure, but every time you slide that up, it's going to be less usable. And you can kind of go back and forth on that slider. And so Apple's offering a mode that pushes a bunch of those sliders way up. But there's quite a big trade-off with that, right? Any attachment to a message that's not a picture is going to be blocked. No link previews, so it doesn't auto-load sites that could maybe exploit the browser if there's a vulnerability or something, or even just leak information about whether you got that message. The web browser is going to disable all just-in-time compilation of JavaScript unless you whitelist the sites to make them work again. Allow list, Alan. Come on, get with the times. Yes, sorry. Also, it'll block any incoming invitations or service requests, so you can't get a FaceTime calls from someone that you haven't already set up in your contact list and so on. You have to like initiate the request so that you don't get unsolicited things popping up on your phone. If you plug in a wired connection, it's going to be like, hey, what do you want me to do with this? It's not going to use it by default so that it's hard to you know, hardware jack the phone. It automatically blocks anything from the mobile device management. So if you have corporate IT or something that would normally apply policies to your phone, in lockdown mode, it won't let anything like that happen because again, something that could be exploited to compromises the security of your phone. They're also going to jack up the bug bounty uh, for anything that affects lockdown mode, offering up to $2 million for each bug found there. Again, companies like the NGO thing you mentioned and, and uh, or NSO and a couple others will pay a lot of money if you will sell them a bypass for Apple. And so Apple's upping their bounty to try to compete with that and be like, wouldn't you rather sell it to Apple than the bad guys? 
when Apple's offering one fewer zeros, maybe not. But when they're offering $2 million, maybe you should uh, follow your conscience instead. Yeah, and it's quite likely that Google will follow suit with this, you would have thought, with Android. Yeah, I imagine there will be a similar thing for Android before too long. We can hope. I don't think it's as much of a guarantee as the uh, as the source articles you know talking about this make it sound like or uh, like you're proposing here. I, I think it's highly likely, but I, I don't want to give anybody ideas. But I could easily see a marketing pivot that you know pushed against it and just kind of said, eh, "You don't need that. It's tiny market anyway. Screw it." I hope that's not what happens, but it could. Yeah, because I saw some people saying what would be great is if you could enable this lockdown mode, but then have some granularity about it and decide which of those aspects you want to turn on and off. Yeah, but that's the opposite of the Apple way of doing anything, right? Well, yeah, configuration and making it your own. Yeah, that's true. But maybe if Google do it, you will get those options. Maybe. Uh, Google's been trending more and more Apple-like with every year anyway. So I, I don't think that's a guarantee. That's true. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, when you have too much control, it's increased the chance of doing it wrong or just you try to do something, you get a pop-up, oh, you'd have to change the security setting to do that. And then how do you tell the difference between a real one and a, a fake one of those? Yeah. People act like that's an impossible barrier to get around, and it's really not. In my opinion, it, the answer is never, oh, just remove the features because they confuse people. Uh, you know, you just, I mean, you put the tiniest little layer in between that and the people that it's too much for. You know, you say, oh, this is advanced settings where you unlock the individual sliders. Ideally, you also have like some kind of, you know, pretty easy warning. Hey, this is advanced mode. You know, you're going to need to look at more screens to figure out exactly what you got. And, you know, that also can serve as an indicator that, you know, if you did not go into that and you aren't intimately familiar with all those settings, oh, wait, I shouldn't be in that custom mode. I should be on, you know, medium high or high or whatever. Or even hide them, even make them tap build number five times before they get those developer options, or in this case, lockdown mode options. I'd really like to see those separate. Uh, Developer options and security options should not be the same thing because potentially it's a big red flag to have really granular security options unlock that let you mess with the settings and get out of a well-known configuration versus just, oh, I turned off animations on my phone. Like, that's not a red flag. But if you should have your phone in, you know, a fully well-understood, oh, yeah, I'm in the high security profile, period, but then you see, oh, wait, I'm not in that simple high security profile. I'm in the custom, and now I have to look at 30 different things to figure out where I'm actually at and evaluate all of that. I don't want that getting muddled together with, well, I just wanted to turn animations off. Yeah, I'd have to agree with Jim there that you definitely want it separate. And especially, like Jim said, you'd want those warnings so that if some app or some person tells you to do it and you don't know what it means, it's going to be like, hey, are you sure you want to do this? Because this this is what would happen if you disable this feature. Suddenly, you know, people can send you a text message that'll root your phone or whatever. Yeah, because you get warning fatigue, like with Windows Vista, like every time you did anything, you got a pop-up saying, oh, are you sure you want to do this? And people just stopped reading it, right? They just said, yes, whatever, to get rid of it. Yeah, it's a real science to dial that in to get the right level of, hey, this is important and not when it's not. And just also don't ask people to answer questions they won't know the answer to, Mm -hmm. because then they'll just guess. There was a lot of research done into like the Firefox and Google Chrome's, you know, SSL warning errors. Those especially have gotten to the point where you have to like click three times to actually get through and go to the thing instead of just sitting, yeah, okay, it's fine. But it'll be interesting to see how this lockdown mode works out and also how it works with 
some popular apps as that starts to happen more. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or any feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. So Ralph writes, What do you all think of software that quietly uses public DNS servers for resolution and thus sends some internal hostname data to public DNS? For example, I might have a hostname Secret Project 1, which isn't normally visible from outside of my internal network. But if software hard-coded to use 8.8.8.8 or another public externally hosted DNS service tried to resolve it, it'd be leaking the existence of Secret Project 1. How bad is this? Related, are hostnames visible only to an internal network generally considered secret? So first off, what I think of it is it pretty much sucks. Now, if an app developer wanted to use hard-coded DNS servers only to resolve things related to that app, like, I don't know, maybe my app is Jim's app, you know, and I've got my own domain name, jimsapp.com, and I always want to use my own DNS server to resolve hostname.jimsapp.com. I don't mind that. That's fine. But yeah, if it starts trying to resolve other host names using a hard-coded DNS server rather than respecting your system or network settings, that is complete garbage. Those app developers need to have a a LART applied sooner rather than later. Every browser is currently doing that now, right? Yes, it is. And it drives me absolutely freaking bonkers. Uh, It can cause you all kinds of problems. Even if you're not concerned about secrecy, you can just have a lot of host names that are valid in your network that won't resolve because this freaking app has just decided it's going to use, you know, its own infrastructure to resolve anything it feels like, not just things directly associated with itself. Are you talking about DNS over HTTPS here? Yeah, we haven't talked about that directly yet, but DNS over HTTPS is what puts real teeth in this bad decision. If you're just using conventional legacy DNS that is not encrypted, is very predictable, it goes to either UDP or TCP target port 53 on the remote end in clear text. Well, you can intercept that and you can block it or you can quietly redirect it to whatever the DNS server should be, whatever you want to do. But once you start implementing DNS over HTTPS or uh, what was what was the other standard, Alan? Uh, the one that's not HTTPS? Uh, Doesn't matter. That's not the one that won. The point is, once you get into fully end-to-end encrypted DNS, now it's no longer simple to just detect and redirect and do whatever you need to with that request. You're now stuck with whatever that application developer did. So if they did something bad, you don't really have any recourse over it. Now, the final question is how secret your internal host names ought to be. And for all the reasons that we've already talked about, they really should not. If there's something super confidential that you're doing in your network, maybe don't plaster that all over the internal machine names because this is some of the very easiest information to leak by this route or any number of other routes. Even movies do this, right? They have a code name for the movie that isn't, you know, whatever big movie sequel. They just give it some random name that they all know is the code name for it. Exactly. And uh, if that's what's going on, if you've got truly confidential stuff, don't put it in your DNS because it is just so freaking easy to leak. While we'd like the host names on our internal network to be secret or whatever, in general, that would be security by obscurity because just if people can't guess it, then it's okay or whatever, right? And that's probably not nearly enough security. 
And in the end, it's the IP address that actually matters and you want to have access control list or something controlling who can connect to that or, you know, require mutual TLS or something to prove who you are. Otherwise, if your secrecy is completely based on if you can guess the name of it, you can connect to it, then that's probably not going to work out very well. Well, that, that's not really the issue that that we've been talking about, Alan. And I, I don't think that is a big one for the same reasons that you mentioned. It's more just, you know, if literally just somebody knowing the names of your hosts would reveal information that you don't want revealed, then you need to have <laughs> less obvious host names. Like, you know, if you get into one of my networks, you're going to see Prod Zero, Hotspur Zero, maybe DR Zero, very descriptive names. They're not going to leak any secrets. It's just bare bones utilitarian functional. That is the approach that I tend to recommend with host names. If it's something completely generic, like if you're doing a Windows network, the vast majority of your employees, you probably shouldn't be renaming those things at all. Windows is going to give it a randomly generated host name, like, you know, Windows GX34, you know, 1-2. And that's fine. Uh, you probably shouldn't be messing with that on individual desktops. And when it is a server and you do need to refer to it repeatedly by host name, again, just bare functional, it doesn't need to give up secrets that you can't afford to lose. Yeah. I think the other problem with this stuff leaking is just the load unqualified host names like this can cause on the root DNS servers. If you remember back a couple of months ago, we talked about when Chrome used to just pick two or three random host names and try to look them up with no qualification to see if your DNS server lied and directed all those to a spam page or something. And when they finally stopped doing that, the load on the root DNS servers dropped by like 50%. You don't want the same thing to be happening because some app has decided to ask Google all the time about all these unqualified host names. So I think apps that do this are bad and I wish they wouldn't. But in the end, it's not that big of a threat to your security. And hopefully you're not depending on just the host names for the security anyway. Also, if you're interested in trying to block DNS over HTTPS, because, you know, it's harder to identify, Paul Vixie, uh, who was one of the original maintainers of Bind back in the day, has written some tooling where it can look at those requests going out to HTTPS, and then it will go and ask them a question over DNS over HTTPS. And if they reply, it'd be like, you're bad, and reroute the traffic with your firewall. So it can actually detect the DNS over HTTPS hosts and make your DNS work properly again. It's all fun and games until somebody's doing dough on the same server as they're actually serving, you know, the web app from. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.